Welcome to Fitness for Consumption, part of the Think Fit, Be Fit podcast network. I'm Dr. Paul Juris, kinesiologist, research scientist, performance coach, author, and innovator. I'm here with my co-host, motor learning and clinical specialist, Gregory Gordon. Together, we have over 50 years of practical and scientific experience in things relating to fitness, performance, and health. Join us as we share our stories and experiences and take a deep dive into essential fitness concepts and some highly complex issues too. Don't worry, we promise to keep it practical. And you know what else we promise? We're not here to tell you what to think or what to do. There's enough of that going around. We're here to offer you a different perspective on fitness based on something called human movement science. Spend some time with us and you'll think more critically about what people are telling you. You'll sort through it all and understand it more completely and you'll become self-empowered to make better decisions for you or for those with whom you're working. Are you ready? Let's get started. Welcome to Fitness for Consumption. Uh, Paul Juris here once again. And as usual, joining me is my good friend, Gregory Gordon. Hello, hello. Hello, how's it going, Gigi? It's going well. And PJ, today we are following up on our previous podcast. So Mm -hmm. like we've mentioned before, these topics that we're attempting to cover on these podcasts, these are really things that if we were in a university setting or if you're even in a continuing education setting like a weekend course all of these topics we've covered so far really things we'd be giving a full day to at least something like four to six hours and interwoven with a lot of practical applications or a week maybe so yeah and and a lab experience absolutely (laughs) so there are a lot of threads that um, naturally are hanging once we tap into a topic so we felt that last our last episode if people have been listening chronologically was on power and rate of tension development the type of motor units you stimulate when you move at a high rate of tension development that's right so there's and it's hard to cover everything that that covers in about an hour podcast so today we're kind of following up on what we covered in that last podcast yeah and what we were talking about was activating fast switch motor units in our power play mm-hmm. episode. And it sort of juxtaposed with this, what I consider conventional wisdom, which we've all heard about, is this notion of time under tension. And so right. the name of this episode is It's About Time. And it's sort of has a double meaning, right? It's about time. It's about time under tension. And Frankly, from my point of view, it's about time that somebody took this thing on because I'm not (laughs) so sure that it's settled fact that the best way to gain strength and power is to maintain time under tension. And so what we want to do is take a critical look at this thing uh, and give people some new perspectives maybe. And when I say new, it's relative because a lot of the research that we're going to cite is old. Uh, it's been around for a while. But yeah, mm-hmm. so what we're talking about is power development, recruiting fast twitch motor units, and then at the same time, combining this idea of 
time under tension with that. And are those things workable, right? Are they compatible? Because I think potentially they may not be. And I think, you know, it'd be fun to kind of explore that. Absolutely. Well, let's get into it. Let's get into it. So, Gigi, you know, when we started talking about this, you sent me an email with a couple of website links. And I thought they were interesting uh, because they sort of launched this subject for us. And there was this discussion in there about what they have, whether it's one's a product and the other one is a service. Right. And you want to talk about that a little bit? Because I was really fascinated by what you shared with me. And I think it's worth yeah. mentioning. Absolutely. And so, yeah, not, not uh, another topic that is certainly not um, lacking for any polarized opinions here. So first of all, this is a good opportunity to discuss what are we talking about exactly when we're talking about time under tension. So one of the things we're talking about is the actual speed or the velocity of the rep that you're performing. So just simply put, you could choose to do a rep really slowly. We were talking about our last episode doing reps at a really high velocity, mm -hmm. anything in between. There's just, you know, there's a, a, a speed and a tempo at which you can perform a rep. That's right. So under that umbrella, there's a school of thought called super slow, and people have adapted it for, you know, different sort of uh, product names and stuff. But generally the idea is that you're moving really slowly in both directions. So some people, we were talking about last time, if people ever focus on the eccentric, sometimes they do it really slowly, but this is not that. This is doing both phases of the rep and even including um, an isometric hold at one point. But the, the focus is that you're doing this rep very slowly. Well, what, what is very slowly? I mean, it, you know, very slowly could be three seconds. It could be two hours. Yeah. Like, what are we talking about very slowly? Great question that I don't have a specific answer for. But I've seen stuff like 10 seconds on each uh, phase, so like a 20-second rep uh, entirely. So 10 seconds for the concentric phase, 10 seconds for the eccentric phase. But yeah, I, I don't have a, a particular paper I can point to that says this is the gold standard for super slow training. Mm -hmm. But if we say, typically speaking, like a rep is about a second or so for most people, if you're just sort of going at a self-selected pace, mm -hmm. this is, could be 10 times, up to 10 times slower than that. So we spend the whole day in the gym trying to get this. Yeah, could be, yeah. <laughs> right. And the, the supposed um, benefits to that are myriad. One of them being, you know, an increase in strength, um, increase in hypertrophy. And this particular studio that is located in New York City that only does this type of training. So when you go to this studio... You, you, you it, use one of my hated words, Gigi. Which is? Only. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's not in my dictionary. Right. Well, they're obviously not subscribing to our ecosystem. No. So what do they do in this... So only this, super slow studio. Yeah, and this is this is representative of at least the other types of studios for this type of training that I've seen, which is they only have selectorized machines, mm -hmm. which for the record we're both fans sure. of. Sure. Um, and you do typically a circuit, and you just go super slow on every rep, on every set of every exercise. So, for example, if I was doing a chest press. I would try to, someone would, the train would be counting or I'd be looking at a clock and I'd do something like 10 seconds forward, then 10 seconds back. And I would do that. And in my experience, because I've actually done this training 
Um, they try to take you to absolute, not only fatigue, but failure. So every set, and I'm not saying this particular studio, um, this is just my personal experience, mm -hmm. but this studio, it's super slow. So every set, every rep is done very slow. And when you go on their website and you, they say, well, here are the benefits for doing this type of training. Yeah, increased bone density, increased muscle mass, increased strength. But they also said increased power. And I think it's actually worth reading verbatim uh, what they said about the power because it's curious, for lack of a better term. Okay. So on their FAQ section, there's a question. Is this a good program for athletes who wanted to develop speed? And their answer is absolutely. Speed is simply another way of saying power or force, and power is generated through the muscles. To some degree, speed or the ability to perform athletic activities with great quickness or speed is genetically inherited. However, the stronger your muscles become, the more force you will be able to generate, and thus the faster you will be able to move in any sport or activity. Okay? The idea that a person needs to train fast to be fast is a myth. Mm -hmm. While it is true Those that are fighting to words. some degree... Yeah, well, <laughs> <laughs> while it is true that to some degree... Training fast with weights or other supposed speed-enhancing devices will make the muscle stronger and so give the illusion that it was the fast speeds that did the trick. Training fast to be fast is about the most dangerous way to go about it. Exclamation mark. Parents of young athletes should be especially wary of coaches and trainers who require their children to perform such dangerous activities. Exclamation mark. PJ thoughts <laughs> my first thought is wow <laughs> <laughs> um all right so first mistake right they say speed is simply another way of saying power or force and my reaction to that is speed is not exclamation exclamation simply another way of saying power or force we had that conversation in power play Right. You can go faster. That doesn't increase your force. Going faster decreases your force. Mm. Right. So just because you can produce more tension in the muscle doesn't mean you can go faster. Um, now, it's true stronger muscles will produce more force, but that doesn't address the notion of power. All right. So there's another part that really kind of irritates me a little bit with this. And that's mm. when they say the idea that a person needs to train fast to be fast is a myth. Now, right. calling something a myth suggests that there's no real evidence in support of that argument. So this is unfortunate because there are decades and decades of research studies that have been done on speed specificity, mm -hmm. right? The most notable of which was a landmark study in 1990 by Mofrod and Whipple in which they showed that the strength gains that we experience occur at or below the speeds at which we train, not mm -hmm. above the speed at which we train. So if we train slow, we don't necessarily gain strength at higher speeds or produce force at higher speeds than the speed at which we trained. So mm -hmm. to call this a myth is really disingenuous and misleading because in fact, it's not a myth at all. And so it's really unfortunate that they would say something like that. Yeah, and let me offer another word, which is just 
you know, plainly ignorant. It's <laughs> ignorant because they're unaware, most likely, of all of that research. And so, by the way, PJ, and we can add this to our show notes, there is an NSCA, uh, the National Strength and Conditioning Association, which is, you know, considered the gold standard for athletic training certifications. They have a position statement paper on youth training from 2009. And it's one of those papers uh, that anyone that's ever been in grad school can relate to that, you know, when you try to print it out, it's like 30 pages and 15 of it are references. So it's got (laughs) references upon references upon references. They have references in there for children as young as seven doing resistance training and velocity-based training with uh, not only no adverse effects, but benefits. So, um, you know, the statement is just, it's some of the... Speaking of myth, this is some of the mythology that, you know, gets spread around there and, and, you know, cast pejoratives on people that are, you know, maybe working with kids and doing velocity-based training, and it's really unfortunate. And, you know, incidentally, it's not just kids. They cited kids there, but we could talk about 80-year-olds doing high-velocity training and and doing it safely. But, you know, Gigi, that's why we do this show. I mean... The problem is there is information. There's misinformation is really the term here. And it's out there. And we need to take that on and we need to get people to think for themselves. And, you know, when you hear that, that's dogma. And I don't like to use dogma. I prefer using the words conventional Mm -hmm. wisdom. That's dogma. And it's not good. And that's why we're here. So that's that's an example of, of a bad information site. Now, there's another one that you shared with me, though, and it takes on the same idea of slow training and benefits of slow training. They just do it in a more diplomatic way. And that yeah, was and from this company called ArxFit that sells, yeah. you know, multi-purpose fitness equipment. So what are they saying there? So that's a really interesting um, company and um uh, machine to me because this is this is sort of the uh the favorite toy of what the the biohacker movement or people that follow dave asprey and Mm -hmm. from the bulletproof company Mm -hmm. um and you know he isn't very obviously intelligent guy and good businessman but he doesn't have any background as far as i can tell in exercise physiology or kinesiology he just does what he likes and what works for him but his words go a long way. Mm-hmm. And he's part of this. There's a, speaking of time under tension, there's um, a group of people associated with this biohacking movement that, you know, it's almost like a competition that who can sleep the least and who can work out the least and, you know, live the longest. And so, you know, they'll say like, I work out 24 minutes a week and I work out 12 minutes a week and I do the super high intensity stuff and they all point to the arcs trainer and pj i'll let you take it from here it's it's an isokinetic machine meaning the the speed is set and when you're using it it's the same thing it's going at a slow pace you're looking at a monitor and the monitor is giving you information about how hard you're pushing into the machine and they've they're kind of weird looking machines but it's basically like a version of a leg press and then kind of like a basic pulley system. And you can do, depending on which machine you have, you can do, you know, some form of a total body workout or just the leg press. Mm-hmm. And again, the the thing is that they take it to, in my experience, again, uh, they take you to absolute failure for each set. Uh, and it's done at a super slow pace. Wow. Well, 
I think we're going to need to do an episode on what it means to go to failure, because that's an interesting concept in and of itself. So let's not fall into that trap right now, because we could go there and it could be fun to talk about it. But yeah, let's start with isokinetic. So isokinetic means at a constant velocity. So what this device does is you set the speed of the machine so that it cannot go faster than that preset speed. And then you push against it. Now it's a cable-based device. I think the leg press version is not. It's a plate that you're pushing. So mm -hmm. it's got some combination of, you know, pushing against the plate or pulling on cables. But those devices, those implements will only go at the speed at which you set it. And for the slow version of it, yeah, so if you're setting it to go at, you know, 30, it could be 30 degrees per second or or you know, a half a meter per second or whatever that may be, however they set it, and I haven't seen it, that's as fast as you can go. So you push against it and it limits you to that speed. Now, there's a whole conversation in and around that because if you recall when we had Dr. David Bame on our show and we were talking about intended velocity, I made a comment back then that a lot of the research that's done in velocity specificity is done with isokinetics. The challenge there is that despite the fact that we move at a fixed speed as determined by the, the mechanical operation of the device, our intention may be to go faster. So this gets mm -hmm. back to the notion of intention. Mm -hmm. um, so the speed at which we're actually moving is not necessarily the speed at which we intend to move. And that's what makes this different from super slow training, by the way. Mm -hmm. In super mm -hmm. slow training, you intend to move slowly. Right. With this device, you may not, but you are regulated to move slowly by the machine itself. So mm -hmm. that's kind of what the isokinetic thing is. But they had a question, and you know, maybe you can weigh in on this. They had a question in their FAQ section, how can arcs increase my fast twitch fiber? Now, they don't say motor units or fiber size or anything. They just say increase my fast twitch fiber. Maybe that person only has one fast twitch fiber and they want to <laughs> make it bigger. Um, they just, the genetic lottery, they only got one. They got one. That was it. Um, <laughs> but, but anyway, how can arcs increase my fast twitch fiber if I'm moving so slowly? So, you know, what do they say to that? Yeah. So their answer, so again, this is from their FAQ page if people are interested. And their answer to that is the expression of fast twitch muscle fiber is stimulated based on force demand. So far, so good. That is the greater the magnitude of the force the target muscle is made to produce during exercise, the greater the fast twitch muscle fiber expression in that muscle as the body adapts to the stimulus. Okay. Well, at least they're not citing mythology anywhere. So that's right. a good thing. Um, right. there's a lot of truth in that, you know, mm -hmm. I'll, I'll, I'll hand it to them. There's a lot of truth in the fact that as you increase the force demands, you have to get to fast twitch. And that's what we talked about in power play, right. right? So to summarize in our last episode, we said to get to fast twitch, it's either high force or high rate of tension development. That's right. So, you, you know, if you're pushing up above what we said was 60% MVC, maximal volitional isometric contraction, or, you know, up in 80, 85% of your one RM, then you're likely to get to your fast twitch motor units. But what they're not addressing is the duration of the stimulus. And this is where we're having this conversation and why we're having this conversation about time under tension. Sure, you know, if I momentarily have a high force output, chances are I'm going to get to my fast twitch. 
But what happens to fast twitch motor unit activity if we prolong that contraction? And that's what this is about. Now, we've been picking on super slow, and mm -hmm. I don't mean to do that. This is not about super slow training, Correct. right? This is about the effects of sustained contractions, meaning a one long repetition or a series of repetitions over time. So when we're talking about time under tension, just to make this really clear, super slow means that one repetition is very, very long. So that's time under tension. Yep. If I do 20 repetitions, even at a normal pace, without any rest in between, you know, that could take me upwards of 30 seconds. Mm -hmm. That's time under tension, mm -hmm. right? So time under tension is this combination of rep speed, how many reps we're doing, if there's any rest interval in between the repetitions, yeah. and then what the total time is that we're doing this work. So yeah. that's what we're getting at. And I think in order for us to shed any light on it, we probably need to look at the research. Right. Okay. So we're going to take a short break and we'll come back and do that. Okay. Okay, we're back. And so we just picked on super slow training a little bit. But as we said, we're, it's not our intention to focus on that, but really this notion of time under tension. And I think what I want to do is just talk about why I started thinking about this. Like, how did I, how did I make this an issue, at least in my own head, and why I've been thinking about this over the years? And it really it starts off with my doing EMG research when I was in grad school. And mm -hmm. I talked about this in power play. Yep. And I was just looking at my own body of work, which really was unrelated to this, but I literally stumbled across a few studies, but like stopped me in my tracks. And I thought, Whoa, what's going on here? I, I, I wasn't <laughs> expecting this. This was like totally out of the blue, but there was this information staring me in the face and it, made me think because, look, I came from a strength and conditioning background. Mm -hmm. You know, my master's degree is in exercise science, but it was mostly with an athletic mindset. So I was always aware of strength training and power training. Those were things that were really interesting to me. And then all of a sudden I started to see this EMG research and th these were head scratchers. And I started asking myself, like, what am I doing? And am I really doing what I'm supposed to be doing just because everybody tells me I should be doing it? Hmm. And so that's what kind of led me down this path. And there is evidence that really gets at what we're talking about here. And it falls into two main buckets. One is what happens to fast twitch motor units with different types of contractions, different durations of contractions, uh, in different set structures, actually. So mm -hmm. how do fast twitch motor units behave when you impose these different demands on them? So that's one thing. And then what is the outcome? What is the mechanical outcome of an exercise set with different types of time under tension? So one is looking at the motor unit, the neuromotor activity, and the other one is looking at the outcome of the actual movement behavior mm -hmm. that we're measuring 
when we apply these different techniques. Like how many reps could you ultimately do, something like that? Yeah, so it's like when you combine reps in different way, does it change the output? So the output could be the force you produce or the velocity that you create, mm-hmm. right? The power you're producing. What happens to those things through a single set of repetitions when you change the work-rest structure within that, when you change the time under tension? Is there an effect on those mechanical outcomes? Right, um, because it's yeah. really atypical to see someone, um, you know, people usually move at a self-selected pace for the That's most right. part when they're doing their exercise. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you'll see someone with, you know, someone say, all right, do this set really fast. Or sometimes they'll say, do this really slow. But very rarely, and honestly, I, for all the years and days I've spent in the gym, I honestly can't remember ever seeing one, someone in a set playing with the timing like intra rep so like they did a few reps then paused for a brief period and then you know they typically select a pace whatever that's going to be and then do it till the end of that set yeah i mean this research frankly is you have to search for it yeah you know and it's it's difficult enough for people in the fitness industry to look at and observe and understand commonly applied research themes things that are just out there and in your face. But when something's really hidden, you know, deep in the annals of neuroscience, chances are unlikely that anybody's going to go there to to find it or ever know that it exists. Right. And this is one of those things. It's like there are these studies that are out there that people probably haven't seen. And so it doesn't give them reason to think that they need to do it any other way. So, you know, our traditional thinking is, well, we need to do 10 reps, 15 reps, mm-hmm. 20 reps, right? And and I'm doing fast and slow. Okay, people know that. Mm-hmm. And I agree with you. I think most people train at a self-regulated pace. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just when we impose those regulations and constraints on people to say, go two seconds up and three seconds mm-hmm. down. Like, mm-hmm. why? What makes that a magical number, you know? Mm-hmm. So anyway, so there's this research out there and there was this one study that I saw, the first one that I came across. In the beginning, there was a study uh, by Andrew Fuglevind and Zakowski, Huey, and and Anoka. By the way, Fuglevind and Anoka, they're like the masters of the universe when it comes to this. Yeah, uh, I'm much more familiar with Anoka than Fuglevind, but... Yeah, so Andrew Fuglevin was one of his students, okay. and um, they did a lot of work together in this area. And they published the paper in 1993, and it was entitled Impairment of Neuromuscular Propagation During Human Fatiguing Contractions at Submaximal Forces. So let me put that in English. <laughs> <laughs> well, if I was their advisor, first thing I would say is, can you be more specific, please? <laughs> so Yeah, seriously. So the, the first word that stands out to me is impairment. Right. I mean, we're saying that there, we're doing something that is going to impair our ability to do something. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the first thing. Neuromuscular propagation, you mentioned it last time, is conduction velocity. Mm-hmm. And that's what this is. Neuromuscular propagation is the propagation of a neural signal down an axon to a muscle. So what they're saying here is they're doing something which is preventing that signal from being transmitted. 
and it's occurring during these fatiguing contractions at submaximal forces. Mm-hmm. We're not talking about maximal forces here. So when I do a long duration fatiguing contraction at a submaximal level, mm-hmm. I somehow am going to impair my system's ability to send a signal down the neurons to the muscles. Hmm. So let's walk that back to an example. And again, not that we're picking on super slow, but just for some context here. If I was doing something super slow, obviously it's going to limit the amount of force I can use. So if I can do 100 pounds at a one rep max, let's say I'm using 50 pounds, but I'm doing a lot of reps because it's you know only 50% of my one rep max and I'm doing it slowly. So doing that might actually impair my ability to propagate the signal. And that's exactly what they're saying. And I need to just mention a word about fatigue because what we think is fatigue is not necessarily what it really is. And you know when we think of fatigue, we think of someone doing a lot of repetitions and then at some point, you know, their muscles burning, you got lactic acid build mm-hmm. up in the muscle and it's burning and you reach this point, and you're like, Ugh, I can't mm-hmm. do anymore. That's really not fatigue, by the way. That's the end point manifestation of fatigue. Mm-hmm. That's the last step in the fatiguing process when you're basically done. Mm-hmm. Fatigue begins immediately. As soon as you lift the weight, you start to fatigue. Mm. It's just that it's a building process, right? Mm. It builds and builds and builds. You get more lactic acid. You get more neuromuscular junction issues going on. Mm -hmm. Um, So fatigue, what we see is failure. That's the end point of fatigue. But you start fatiguing immediately. Mm. So we really need to understand that. But what this is saying is that Sustained submaximal contractions limit muscle excitation, okay? When you do this for a long time, any kind of sustained activity, we are preventing the nervous system from stimulating neurons and motor units. Hmm. Now, that was fascinating to me. And that sort of sent my head into a spin. Like, wait a minute, but this is what we're doing. So what does this mean, really? Well, so, but it also just anecdotally, you know, we obviously know there's a limit to our ability to produce force. So we know somewhere along that spectrum, we're going to lose our ability to keep generating force. But I think what we're getting at here is which type of motor units we're going to lose within this uh, time period. That's right. Now... If you look at the EMG research related to fatigue, and this is really interesting, and this is where it becomes sort of an anomaly. If you look at EMG studies that are looking at integrated EMG activity, what those studies show is that as you start to fatigue, the integrated activity goes up. So if you're looking at an EMG signal, the amplitude of that signal is rising as you're fatiguing, all right? So what does that mean? Yeah, what does that mean? Well, so what it means is that as we're fatiguing, our ability to generate force is declining. And so in order for the system to sustain force output, it has to drive that, those motor units and muscles harder and harder and harder. And that's why you see an increase in integrated EMG activity, because the system's trying to make these muscles work. But they're fatiguing. 
But that's different from inhibiting contractility or inhibiting neural propagation. That's facilitating propagation because it's trying to drive it more. But at the same time, there's an inhibition that's going on there. And that's what we're focusing on here. So, PJ, real quick, um, I think this also brings up a good reason why you really need to be specific about um, making inferences on EMG. And now that EMG is becoming so much more widely available Mm -hmm. to anybody, you know, there's a lot of stuff on social media where people are taking a, you know, a brief sample of an EMG and, you know, um, trying to... um, combine that with some sort of exercise that this exercise is superior and in our last episode you mentioned integrated emg signal and you referenced that as that's basically almost like the volume knob on an amplifier like the the power that is being recorded from the electrical signals being sent out to the muscles yeah it's kind of like the gain absolutely and then you mentioned um another type of emg signal the mean power frequency and you said that's more like the stereo signal the the frequency of the stimulation Mm -hmm. so why would one just for my curiosity why would one choose to use one version or another well it depends on what you want to look at so if you want to just look at the general activity the central nervous system activity that's driving motor units to to turn on, right, and driving muscle fibers to contract, you can do that with integrated EMG. It's telling you the general overall power of that signal. Mm-hmm. But if you're really trying to look at the different frequency components of a signal, of, an, of a contraction, remember, fast-twitch motor units have a different conduction velocity mm-hmm. than slow-twitch motor units, right, by their names. I mean, it's obvious. Mm-hmm. Fast-twitch fibers and motor units have a high conduction velocity, Slow twitch have a slow, low conduction velocity. And we can tease those things out if we're doing a frequency analysis. Hmm. So when we look at the frequency of the signal, we can say, well, is this moving more towards fast twitch or slow twitch? Mm-hmm. If we're doing an integrated EMG, we know that above certain amplitudes, we have to have fast twitch motor units in there. But we can't really tell proportionately what's working. With the mean power frequency, we can. Hmm. It gives us this opportunity to really look at pools of fast twitch motor units and say, yes, they're on or they're not. Mm, and gotcha. so it becomes a really important measurement tool when, in fact, that's what we're trying to, to look at. Okay, so gotcha. we can see, and when we go through some of this literature that we're going to examine today, we're going to look at mean power frequency because it's really telling us to what extent fast twitch motor units are engaging in these activities or disengaging, depending Mm -hmm. on what they're looking at. Right. There was a study that was done in 1982, Moritani, Nagata, and Muro. Now, I cited Toshio Moritani in our last episode. We're going to do it again because he's been deeply involved in this subject matter. And this title of the study was Electromyographic Manifestations of Muscle Fatigue. And what they did, what they confirmed, is an increase in neural drive to fatiguing contractions. This is what we just said. As you start to fatigue, the IEMG signal amps up, so the system is driving harder for those muscles to produce force. But they also showed a decrease in the mean power frequency. So we have two things going on here. The signal amplitude is going up on the integrated signal, 
but the mean power frequency is going down. And so what they are demonstrating is a reduction in fast twitch activity, even as neural drive is increasing. Right. So you're somehow trying to make up for it um, by losing the fast twitch fibers. You're trying to just recruit as much of the slower twitch fibers as you can to try to stave off what you're losing from the fast twitch. That's right. But what we know is when you do fatiguing contractions, fatiguing means you're maintaining time under tension. You're going to work, drive the muscles harder, but not with the fast twitch motor units because they're not as active. That activity is diminishing at the same time as the other signal is rising. Mm. It's really interesting that there's this behavior in the fast twitch motor units, which is directly affected by this onset of fatigue. Now, that study, they're not alone at all in, in their study. So there were two studies that examined sustained isometric contractions. Mm-hmm. So now it's not only sustained contraction, but it's also the type of contraction. We talked about isometrics in our last episode as well. Mm-hmm. This is really interesting because these folks are looking at isometric contractions. So there was a study done by Christensen, and he looked at three different isometric states. Right? So they did a 10% contraction, 10% of MVC, mm-hmm. for an hour. <laughs> so it's a very, very low level. Talk about sustain. Holy moly. Um, they, it's a very low level, only 10%, but you have to hold it for an hour. Right. All right. The next condition they looked at was a 20%, so twice as much intensity, but the way they did it was five seconds on and five seconds off until the total intensity of that was equal to the one hour 10% contraction. So they normalized the intensity, the overall intensity of the work. And then lastly, they did a 20% MVC until complete exhaustion. Mm -hmm. All right, so you've got an hour at 10%, whatever it took to get exhausted at 20%. And then in the middle of that was this 20% on for five seconds and off for five seconds. And here's what happened. The first condition, 10% for an hour, and the third condition, 20% until exhaustion, had a decreased mean power frequency. Fast twitch motor units are dropping out. Mm -hmm. But the second condition, the intermittent contractions, there was no change. Ah, so something's interesting there. One of those things is not like the others. (laughs) That's exactly right. So five seconds on, five seconds off. When you gave the system a chance to recover by reducing the time under tension during this thing, nothing happened to the fast twitch motor units. They stayed active. Really interesting. You wouldn't think five seconds would be enough. Like just on the surface, you wouldn't think it would be enough. But Well, you know, what I think is interesting about that five seconds that you mentioned it, I would agree. I don't think five seconds is necessarily enough, but they only were five seconds on. Right. So I think you need to look at the ratio between how Mm -hmm. long you're on and how long you're off. Mm -hmm. So this was one to one. And also the intensity. Um, and the, yeah, it was, it's 20%. So it's still a low level. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, if you're only on for five seconds, maybe five seconds rest is enough. Mm-hmm. If you're on for 30 seconds, maybe five seconds is not enough. Mm-hmm. So that's the other thing to consider. Um, there was another study done by Crowlund and Jorgensen. They looked at five minute 
sustained isometric contractions of the forearm flexors. I think they said biceps and brachioradialis. And that's at 30% of their MVC. What they found was a significant decrease in mean power frequency and conduction velocity. So low-level sustained contraction, mean power frequency goes down, conduction velocity goes down. Mm -hmm. If you do intermittent contractions, mean power frequency stays where it is. Mm -hmm. What is this telling me? Your fast switch motor units are responding to this, and unless you give them a break, you're not turning them on. Right, and it also appears on that last study that you're you're cycling to get to the lower and lower um, twitch fibers. That if the conduction velocity is also dropping, you keep dropping out to the lowest in the pool that can stay active enough to keep the required tension. Hence the increase in integrated EMG activity. Right. So this is all beginning to make sense to me. Okay. So the question is, what's, I mean, we're talking about fast twitch motor units dropping out, but what happens to those motor units? Like mm -hmm. why? Like what is the, the thing that's causing them to drop out? What is the system really doing? And there are two landmark studies. And these are the ones that completely like spun my head. Uh, Hanner's is involved in both of them. One is Hanner's by himself. The other one is Grimby and Hanner's. Mm -hmm. These are in the show notes for anybody who wants to look. 1974 and 1977. Okay. So again, this isn't news. It is news today, maybe, but this stuff was published a long time ago. In 74, Hanner's did this study with sustained isometric contractions of the tibialis anterior they used indwelling electrodes. Ouch. Yep. Um, they identified specific distinct types of motor units. One that maintained sustained tension mm -hmm. at low firing thresholds. Sounds mm -hmm. like a slow twitch. Yep. And the other that exhibited burst-like tension at higher thresholds. Sounds like a fast twitch. Yep. Okay. As contraction duration increased, and I quote, the thresholds of these bursts tend to increase progressively so that ultimately it is not possible to recruit the motor unit at all until after a period of rest. So what Hanners is saying there is when you do sustained contractions, the firing threshold on fast twitch motor units elevates to the point that you can't turn it on right and we should mention briefly what that means because the thresholds can be dynamic so we spoke in the last episode about what all or none really means with, mm -hmm. which is that there's something is pinging a, a neuron and it gets enough stimulus that at a certain point and uh not that anyone needs to memorize these numbers but typically speaking a neuron's resting about minus 70 and it needs to actually get more positive to get to about minus 55 in order to send a signal. But that's not fixed in stone. So there are times where that potential, that resting potential, that 70 can, can get either closer to the firing potential or further away from the firing potential to make it easier or harder to stimulate a certain, uh, certain neuron. Right. So you have this firing threshold we talked about the firing threshold mm -hmm. last time. That's the point at which the it's called a polarity. So mm -hmm. it's 
this polarity in the cell, this electric polarity that once it reaches a certain level, as you said, minus 55, um, that's when it turns on. Now, the system can excite these motor units or it can inhibit the motor unit. And it does that in something called presynaptic facilitation or presynaptic inhibition. In facilitation, obviously, it's pushing that button. It's kind of like you're in your car and you're revving the engine before you actually take off. But in presynaptic inhibition, what it's doing is it's dulling it a little mm-hmm. bit. It's making it harder for you to turn it on. And so what's really happening here is when you do sustained contractions, there's this state of presynaptic inhibition which is making it harder and harder and harder to turn on these fast twitch motor units. Uh, there was another study that was done by Grimby and Hatters in 77. Again, they found the same types of motor units continuously firing low threshold or intermittent firing high rate and tension, but uh, high threshold. And during sustained contractions, the second type, those intermittent high threshold motor units were inactive. But when you switch to a twitch-like acceleration, both types were active. There's Henneman's size principle that we talked about last time. It did stimulate the slow twitch, low threshold first, but in a burst twitch-like activity, both of them were on. Mm -hmm. When you do sustained activity, the fast twitch are not on and in fact, the system pushes up their firing threshold to the point that you can't turn them on. Mm-hmm. Or much harder to. Yeah. Much harder to. So that's a good, that's a fair statement because can't is not really yeah. the word, but in this condition, it's very, very, very difficult. Mm-hmm. So this actually makes sense to me, by the way. Yeah. Because right. we need fast twitch motor units for fight or flight. Explain. Well, fight or flight, there's a bus coming at you and you got to get the heck out of the way or get run over. You need the ability to recruit fast twitch motor units and move very rapidly and powerfully. That's fight or flight. Like you've got to get out of there or you're going to die. Right. And on the other end of the spectrum, you know, most of our daily life, we don't need for, you know, just walking down the street or sitting in a chair and drinking a a cup of coffee we don't necessarily need to recruit all of our fast twitch muscle fibers. No, and when we're in the gym lifting weights, we don't need to either. Like your brain knows that, hey, this is a cool place. I'm hanging out, having a good time. Uh, My life is not at risk here, right? But if we truly fatigued out these fast twitch motor units, remember, in thinking of the characteristic of fast twitch motor units, rapid twitch tension, rapid onset, very high twitch um, tension, but they fatigue very easily. And if we truly fatigue these things out, then we're not going to be able to get out of the way of the bus. Mm -hmm. So raising the firing thresholds on these motor units and making them inaccessible is self-preservation. Yeah, it's sparing them in a sense. Exactly. Let's not use them if we don't have to. If I can Mm -hmm. get around this, we're not going to use them. But what does that mean in terms of developing power? It means that we're not going to develop power the way we want to because we can't get those motor units active. 
Right, if we're not using the right type of stimulus. That's exactly right. Okay, there's one thing that we need to cover here before we kind of move on to the next section. And we talked about it last time, and I think this is a favorite topic of yours, and it's intention. So how does intention play into this, Gigi? Right. Well, so that's a great question because uh, we talked about sparing or, you know, that under certain conditions, these long sustained contractions, um, it's harder to tap into these fast twitch motor fibers, but it's not impossible. So we looked at a couple studies where even under really long fatiguing contractions, so there's a DeLuca study we looked at where someone, uh, the individuals are doing a version of a shrug, like um, if you where you're raising your shoulder blade up towards your ear Mm -hmm. and they're holding it for five, 10 or 30 minutes. And so within these five, 10 and 30 minute conditions, every so often they're being coached to to go up even higher and, and do like a little twitch type burst. And what you see is that when someone has a voluntary drive, to um, increase, to do a twitch-like burst. In example, if you're going for a long walk and all of a sudden you have to get out of the way of a bus, you can tap into those fast twitch fibers. So your intention, you can override what's happening um, at the, when the system is sort of defaulting towards using the, the slower twitch uh, fibers for maintenance, you can override that if you've got a certain voluntary intention to do so. Yeah, and I think what happens there is you potentially override this presynaptic inhibition, mm-hmm. right? You shut that off, essentially. Mm-hmm. You know, think of it like someone's dropping Novocaine on your nerve and, you know, you can't use it, but now all of a sudden you turn off the flow of Novocaine and you can use it again. <laughs> and that's one, one way of looking at it. But the the question is, under what conditions will that really work? So if you're doing sort of a shrugging movement, right so it's a very lightweight continuous we talk about very very low amplitude or Mm -hmm. very low load i would imagine it's pretty easy to activate the fast twitch motor units if you really must i think what we need to consider here when we're talking about this is the difference between doing an unloaded very light sustained activity versus weightlifting activities where we're looking at potentially significant loads what happens then? And to be perfectly honest with you, I'm not sure I know, but you know, there's a <laughs> lot a that we don't know still. And I think you know, part of this conversation is one of discovery for us as well, because when you have a lot of different information and a lot of different resources that we're bringing into the discussion, suddenly you start thinking about something new when there's a revelation that occurs. So yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, DeLuca has done a lot of great work in this area. Uh, the question is, you know, does it matter when the stimulus is super low and then you want to twitch like a really, really lightweight, even lower than 10% MVC versus when you're working at a significant weight, what happens then? I don't know. That's right. And the great Arsenio Hall used to have a segment on his show called Things That Make You Go Hum. And so, you know, I am the first person every time I read a paper or hear something interesting, the first thing I start thinking about is, okay, what's the application I can use for it tomorrow? Mm -hmm. But, you know, in the world of human movement science, there's a lot of stuff where you just have to file it under things that make you go, hmm, and you you think about it, you you try to explore it, but yeah, you, you... 
and that's kind of the fun of it too, by the way. You you just you have it there. You know that these things are possible under certain conditions, and you just go on a journey with it. But PJ, we could talk about all the the neuroscience all day, but yeah, let's get into the gym. Let's get a little bit more practical now. I think that's a great idea, and we'll do that in a minute. Hello all, GG here. We hope that you're enjoying today's podcast and want to remind you that more great fitness content is right at your fingertips. So please join our friend Jennifer Schwartz on the Think Fit, Be Fit podcast show, where she offers her experience and knowledge about exercise physiology and athletic training in truly unique discussions on building resilience and inspiring high quality exercise. And now let's get back to our conversation. All right, so we are back, and I agree, you know, we can talk about neuroscience all day long and and have a good time doing it. We do need to kind of get in the gym. You're absolutely right, Gigi. And so the question is, what happens if we change the variables in strength training? Changing the sets, changing uh, the rest intervals. Mm -hmm. What happens if we change some of these things to the outcome measures I mentioned at the top of our episode, things like velocity or power, things like that. Mm -hmm. So um, there's a type of training that's referred to as cluster loading. Mm -hmm. And I noticed this several years ago, and I thought this was an intriguing idea because way back when I thought, all right, if my fast twitch motor units are, are dropping out because I'm sustaining activity and I don't want them to do that, What's a way that I could potentially prevent that from happening? And I thought of this scenario, well, what if I'm doing a bench press and it's easier on a power rack, I would think, than just a bench press. Mm -hmm. Um, But nevertheless, I'm doing a bench press and after every repetition, what if I racked it and just paused and just waited a few seconds? You know, it's like the five seconds rest on, on the study we mentioned. Yeah. So this way, I just take a break and give my fast twitch motor units a chance to like breathe. Okay, that's good. I can go again. Well, we think we know what conventional wisdom would say, right? Which is that you're resting too much in the set. You're not going to get to fatigue. If you don't get to fatigue, you're not going to develop strength and power and hypertrophy. So that's the yeah. chorus of conventional wisdom. Conventional wisdom, right? Well, you'll never get to failure that way. Mm-hmm. I don't want to fail. I want to succeed. <laughs> so... So I started to see these studies that were coming out on cluster loading. Now, cluster loading studies take on two forms. The first form is what we'll discuss first, and that is what happens to these outcome measures from the beginning to the end of a set, right? So they look at these things at the beginning and they measure them again when you're done with the set and how do those change over the course of the set as a result of changing the work-rest interval structure. And then the second type of research study, which is a little more ambiguous, to be honest with you, uh, is what is the long-term effect of a cluster-loading training protocol? Mm -hmm. But first, let's look at what's going on within a set. So there was a study done in 2011 by Hansen, Cronin, and Newton. John Cronin's done a lot of work in this area, by the way. So if you're interested... Look him up because he's got some good stuff. The name of this study is Effects of Cluster Loading on Force, Velocity, and Power During Ballistic Jump Squat Training. Mm-hmm. Right, So he's got his subjects doing these jump squat training workouts. 
and they're measuring performance characteristics from beginning to the end of the sets. Again, velocity, power, force. Mm -hmm. So there were four different types of training setups, clusters. Mm -hmm. The first one was traditional sets. Four sets of six repetitions with three minutes rest in between. Mm -hmm. And within that set, you just did, as soon as you recovered from the jump, you just did the next one, like a traditional self-paced. Yeah, there's no rest in between repetitions. You're just doing six reps in a row. And then you rest for three minutes and then you do another set mm -hmm. and so on and so forth until you've completed four sets. So that's a traditional structure. Then one group did what they call cluster one, which is four sets of six singlet repetitions with 12 seconds rest between each rep and a two minute interset rest. So this mm -hmm. is what I just said about the bench press. Do a repetition racket. Right, so they're doing a jump squat, resting for 12 seconds, doing another one, resting, and so forth. They do the same volume, by the way. So this is they're both four sets of six. It's just that they're organizing the sets differently. There was another cluster set with four sets of six reps done in couplets. So two, and then two, and then two, with 30 seconds between the couplets. Right. And two minutes in between sets. And then lastly, there were four sets of triplets. So you do three and three and they put a 50 second rest between the triplets with two minute interset mm -hmm. rest. OK, so we've got these different clusters. First, looking at peak power. Again, what they're doing is they're looking at peak power at the beginning and at the end. And what they found was the peak power was lower for the traditional set than it was for the first or third clusters between sets one and four. So they did four sets. So cluster one, again, was singlet repetitions with 12 seconds rest. Mm -hmm. Cluster three was triplets with 50 seconds rest. So the peak power was lower in the traditional than when they did those clusters. Yeah, so... Over the reps, over the six reps, the peak, the the group that did the traditional, their power kept getting lower and lower. That's right, exactly right. So especially the last two reps. So if you look at peak power over the last two reps, that traditional group was lower than all the clusters at the end of the repetitions for peak power. So what's happening when you do six straight reps with no rest in between? your power from the first to the sixth is dropping. Right. And Okay, mm -hmm. that's, that's right. But not when you do it in clusters. Right. So that's interesting. You're able to maintain your power when you set up a structure where you get some rest in between the, these repetitions. So based on the studies that we went over before, even though this group didn't look at EMG, we could, I think it's fair to infer that um, you're using more of the fast twitch when you're using the cluster loading. I would think so. If you're going to get more power output that way, then you have to be engaging fast twitch motor units. Mm -hmm. Not so when you're doing these continuous repetitions. Interesting. They, you know, they also looked at peak velocity, and the traditional was lower than the third cluster, which is the triplets, um, at repetition four. It was lower than the second and third clusters at repetition five and lower than all of them at 
repetition six. Mm-hmm. So velocity's dropping, power's dropping, mm-hmm. but not when you're using clusters. You're able to sustain these things longer. And you know what's interesting to me about this study, and again, we, we have it in the show notes for anyone that's even just interested in looking at the, um, at the figures, is that the cluster group one that took about 12 seconds between each rep, or took 12 seconds between each rep, they're basically, mm-hmm. when you look at it, they're about the most consistent from rep one to six. So the other groups mm-hmm. had, they vacillated a little bit more. But um, it's interesting to me that the 12 second rest uh, between each one is pr- pretty much the most consistent. And I would think that just taking, first of all, only doing one mm-hmm. is less fatigue inducing and taking that 12 seconds ensures that the fast twitch motor units can engage i mean if your goal is to improve your strength and power wouldn't it make sense that you can sustain your velocity and power and force output more consistently through all the repetitions that you're doing as opposed to having a drop off where it's not really helping you very much. Yeah, also just completely anecdotally, um, to me, like 12 seconds is about the length of time to where I could still be fully psychologically engaged. Like if it was a minute between it, you know, I think my mind would start to wander. If it was two seconds, I would feel like I didn't have, you know, because if, unless you're doing jump squats regularly, a jump squat is not the easiest thing to perform. So, you know, it you want at least for myself that I, I do that one day a week, I take a few seconds at least for sure between each rep. So 12 seconds to me feels like it's right about the right amount of time to recover, but still stay psychologically engaged. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I'm looking at this third cluster that they have, which is six triplets with a 50 second rest in between. I don't think I can really stay locked in yeah. when I'm waiting that long between these repetitions. Yeah. You know, but this is the way the study yeah, is yeah. set up. So, yeah. right, they have to look at these different variables. Uh, there was another study that was done in 2020. So this is more recent. Mm-hmm. Garcia Ramos and colleagues, movement velocity and lactate production. Mm-hmm. So now they're adding a physiological element. What's happening to lactic acid and how is that causing change in your system? And they had five different configurations. One traditional was three sets of 10 with no rest in between Mm -hmm. each repetition. Another traditional with six sets of five reps with no rest in between. Mm -hmm. And then there were three cluster sets, three sets of 10 with five seconds in between each rep, three sets of 10 with 10 seconds Mm -hmm. between each rep, and three uh, sets of 10 with 15 seconds between each rep. So what they're doing is they're just changing the total rest interval between each repetition on these three clusters. In the traditional, there was no rest in between. Right. The velocity was significantly higher for the second traditional, six sets of five reps, Mm -hmm. and for the five-second cluster, three sets of 10 with five seconds of rest in between each. So velocity was higher when you added a rest interval between each rep or when you did fewer total reps. Mm -hmm. That's the second traditional. So if you're limiting your total number of reps to five, even if you have no rest in between, you're still doing better. Even though to your point, fatigue is starting right away. You haven't gotten to the point of 
of fatigue yet to where you're really starting to downregulate um, which fibers you can tap into. A absolutely. Absolutely. And then they also looked at lactate production. And that, that was significantly lower for the 10-second latency cluster and the 15-second latency cluster. So in other words, if you give yourself 10 seconds into rep rest or 15 seconds into rep rest, you're not going to build up lactic acid as much. Right. Which is kind of interesting because if your goal is to do, you know, lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of reps, that may be the way to do it because you won't fatigue as fast. Yeah, but to counter that, so, you know, hypertrophy, which we're going to devote a full episode to later, um, you know, it's complex. And lactate production and metabolic waste accumulation may be an important aspect, actually, for hypertrophy. Now, this episode, we're really talking about time under tension and its relation to power. But one of the things they mentioned in the study is that the, the TR2 group that did the six reps, um, six sets of five six, reps, six yeah. sets, sorry, six sets of five reps. Um, they had a very, in terms of uh, force production, it was similar to the groups that waited the 10 and 15 seconds, but mm -hmm. had higher lactate accumulation. So if you want to maintain your power, but you're actually trying to get higher lactate because you believe that that actually can, is one of the precursors to generating hypertrophy, that could be. On one hand, you could look at that and be like, ah, that's the ideal application. Now, here's the whammy. When you look at the total amount of time it took to do that TR2 set, it was about, I want to, I should give the exact number, but I believe it was around 26 minutes. And mm -hmm. some of the other sets were about 16 minutes, 17 minutes. So, you know, it's 40% more time. It's, it may, for, for practical applications, something that's going to take you almost twice the amount of the time, you know, that's something you'd have to consider. Absolutely. And by the way, it also is a reason why we need to look at the fine print in some of the research studies that we're examining because there are a lot of confounding variables and a lot of additional variables that are utilized in these studies that could explain some of the outcomes that we're seeing. Mm -hmm. So, we want to be careful that we don't just take for granted or look at it face value and say, well, this is what's going on. So you're right. You're absolutely right about this. It's, you know, there are a lot of different things that are happening that we should consider before we immediately jump into the pool. One thing that I would say about this one is that second traditional structure, six sets of five reps, you could almost call that a cluster. Even though there's right. no right. rest in between each repetition, you're only doing five repetitions. And that's one of the things that we need to think about when we're considering engaging in cluster training. How many reps do I need to do? And then what kind of rest do I need? I'll talk about what I do in a minute, but that's something in this particular study, I would almost call that a different kind of a cluster setup. Absolutely. So if you think about training abs abdominals so who like i never see people do anything other than like you know the sort of repetitive they're going to do 30 or 100 or whatever but you know if let's say you say to someone all right you're going to do 30 reps but you're going to do them in clusters of five so you're going to do five then you're going to wait i don't know 15 seconds and you're going to do another five that's a totally to me that's a, a totally reasonable cluster for something like that sure and the total volume is going to be the same Mm -hmm. It's just that you're structuring the repetitions and the time between the repetitions, repetitions a little differently. Mm -hmm. 
So then what happens though with training when you're doing this? So we're talking about what's happening during a set of repetitions uh, when you do it these different ways. The training studies are a little less definitive. And I mentioned this at the top of our segment. Uh, for whatever reason, you know, we would expect to see very clear, distinct differences between different types of training when it comes to this. There was a study that was done by Davies and colleagues. They were looking at bench press velocity and power and comparing cluster training with traditional training. And what they found was that there were similar increases in both. So one wasn't necessarily better that than the other at producing bench press velocity and power. The traditional structure was four sets of five reps with a three minute interset rest. This was at 85% of one RM. So mm -hmm. this is a heavy load now. Mm -hmm. These aren't one of these light loads. Mm -hmm. The cluster set was four sets of five reps with 30 second interrep rest mm -hmm. at 85%. And they found that they were getting comparable outcomes. Well, the, the good thing here is that the cluster version gave them the same training response, right. elicited the same response. But here's what I would say. And this is a point that you made a few minutes ago. They had a 30-second rest in between each repetition mm -hmm. in the cluster set. I think that's too much. Just to stay engaged, just to uh, psychologically... Yeah, I mean, it, I think to, to stay engaged psychologically and to be able to really produce the power in the bench press that we want, I think resting 30 seconds uh, in between each repetition is just too much. Yeah. It's... And, you know, I think that's also what's limiting the, the impact of this kind of training. Yeah, so, and again, in our ecosystem, you know, every tool can be a viable option depending on context so you know where if i was going to do that where i would stick that would be at the end of a workout when someone is fatigued and i'm just for whatever reason if i'm trying to get more volume in to me that's the place to put it but if we're somewhere in the beginning middle-ish of a workout i totally agree for me 30 seconds would be too long my mind my mind my beautiful mind would easily start to drift about the sono speakers i want to buy or something and it would yeah i know. mean you would need to put a television monitor in front of me because i'd be pretty bored doing that yeah, yeah so i think again we're, we're we're splitting hairs in a lot of ways here because we haven't clearly defined what clusters are or need to be mm -hmm. what we know i think what we've discovered from this and from some of the research we've been talking about is if you do too many repetitions without rest in between and you do it for too long, fast twitch motor units are dropping out like flies. Mm -hmm. And we're not able to get to them unless there's this real significant intention to do so. Mm -hmm. And that may only be possible if the overall load structure is very, very low in the first place. Mm -hmm. yeah. But once you get up into these loads of 85% or higher, uh, we may need to shorten the total number of repetitions that we do and then apply rest intervals between these clusters. Mm -hmm. And the, you know, the Cronin study, the one that we cited earlier, where they were doing triplets, couplets and triplets, mm -hmm. those are the things that I think are making sense. When you limit your number of repetitions to five, 
even if there's no rest in between, do five repetitions and then take a break, mm-hmm. right? Give your fast twitch motor units an opportunity to recover and re-engage. Mm-hmm. Then I think there's a possibility that we can really push the boundaries. And as we're seeing in some of these research studies, maintain velocity, maintain power all the way through the whole set so that it actually does help us to improve our power over time. I just don't think that the training studies at this point are showing us enough variables or enough different ways of doing it so that we can see what works. So what it's really telling me is we all need to kind of play with this ourselves. Absolutely. And where that really comes to mind to me is when you're actually training someone for athletics. And we'll take a quick break and we'll talk about that in the next segment. Okay, we're back. Now, Gigi, you were just saying that training somebody to work in a certain way to accomplish these things was weighing on your mind a little bit or something that you wanted to, to bring up. So yeah. where are you going with that? This is one of the most frustrating things to me about when you actually study for like some of the certification programs that, that are preparing you to train people that are athletes whether you know recreational college or professional and it's kind of binary it's either aerobic or anaerobic and then you know there's there's a little bit more nuance to it and even if you look at something like the NSEA textbook if you mm-hmm. if you look at a sport like basketball it's under the anaerobic side now to their point basketball is mainly you know you are running up and down the court but once you get into a position set you're kind of standing there then you'll make a quick burst so what their position is that this sport is mainly dominated by these quick anaerobic bursts the jumps the hops the leaps all that stuff Um, and if you're going to train someone you've got to put on this anaerobic hat and um, you know you there's a certain protocol they suggest versus if you are training someone that's a marathoner which we know that's highly aerobic, so you would take a different approach to the strength and conditioning program for that person. So to me, that's incredibly limiting because there's so much in between. So PJ, let me present this to you. You've got a boxer. The boxing, if you're a professional boxer, typically it's the the fewest amount of rounds you'll do is eight, and that's even at the lower levels. Mm-hmm. But if we had heart rate monitors on the average boxer on the 10th round, uh, I think it's fair to reason that they would certainly be, um, we could qualify what they're doing as having an aerobic base to it. Now, on top of that, every, you know, depending on the fight itself, they've got to come up with very high velocity and very high power bursts of energy to, to punch somebody. And so there's this whole area in between where it's really a mix of aerobic and anaerobic and we need to use slow twitch we need to we need to use fast twitch we need speed we need endurance and we need power so i have a little bit of experience working as a muscle activation technique specialist to a professional boxer for a couple fights and i wasn't the strength and conditioning specialist i was just um, treating this person but you know i was asking a lot of questions and I was curious about the strength and conditioning routine this person had. And it was, it was something kind of like a, what I would consider like a CrossFit style workout. So they would do some jumps and they would do some lifts. And what you see when you're doing it for two and 
for two to three minutes, they would time it like a round, is that what we brought up in the very beginning, someone eventually self-regulates their pace to what they can maintain. And based on these studies we've shown, the pace they can maintain is basically going to be drawing from more of the slow twitch fibers. And the cluster loading um, papers we just went over, to me, that would be a really interesting opportunity to use those types of um, the, those types of principles with an athlete like a boxer. Yeah, I think any activity, any sport has sort of a, an aerobic base that people need to sustain. I mean, basketball is another example. And I worked in the NBA. Uh, you got players running up and down the floor and they're fatiguing. And then on top mm -hmm. of that, they're running up and down the floor and then they have to jump. Mm -hmm. So there is this interplay between the aerobic and anaerobic elements or the sustainable activity versus the burst-like power activity. And these have to be worked together uh, into a training protocol. So I think it makes sense to um, actually induce some levels of fatigue. And remember, as we were discussing last time in mm -hmm. uh, power play, deliberately causing fatigue causes synchronization of slow twitch motor units. And mm -hmm. that can be applied to a power-like activity. But I think there's this need to introduce cluster loading into the training paradigm so that we do give our fast twitch motor units an opportunity to recover and then re-engage. Because if we don't let them re-engage, we're going to see declines in performance. Right. And so the point, you know, I was trying to make before is, is does a CrossFit style workout, um, you know, which can certainly arguably improve your strength, power, endurance, is it the best way to exploit um, all of your all of the substrates you really need to develop for these particular sports? And by the way, soccer, tennis, football, you know, just about any sport that has some mix of aerobic and anaerobic activity, cycling, running, even marathon runners. You know, marathon we think is all aerobic, but look at the end of a race of a marathon. Those guys are it's unbelievable they can get even faster because they run the the speed they run a marathon at is jaw dropping to me but that at the end of the race typically there's a sprint to the finish a lot of times because you know the the top few people are in the same category and one person has to pull away so they need to after two hours plus they've got to somehow tap into this extra reserve which we spoke about earlier they can do with the, the certain amount of voluntary drive but it's very finite that if the if they were getting to the finish line. The organizers were like, ah, ha, ha, we're pulling a fast one on you. We're going we're gonna to extend it another 5,000 feet. You know, they, wouldn't, they most likely wouldn't be able to maintain that sprint. Pace. Yeah, I mean, and cyclists are the same in, in that regard. I worked with a professional cyclist, and her thing was improving her sprint performance and breakaway performance. And this is after, what, a 100-mile road race, and then at the end you got to okay. sprint it out. So, yes, these things exist. But what I would say is using a traditional approach of just maintaining time under tension is probably not going to get you to the point at which you can perform the way you just described. So we need right. to introduce something else into this because time under tension alone is not the solution, especially when we see this change in behavior and fast twitch motor unit activity. We've shown that we can sustain force and power 
and velocity better when we do cluster loading. And what we probably need to do is combine cluster loading with other things, which mm-hmm. kind of gets us into this notion of our ecosystem. That's right. You know, it, it's not doing one thing or the other. We're not advocating here, everyone stop what they're doing and only do cluster loading. Mm-hmm. It's put cluster loading in with the rest of your program. I do it. So my cluster loading, by the way, I mentioned earlier, you know, talk about what I do. When, when I'm doing a circuit, especially in an upper body circuit, I look at everything in 15 second intervals. I do three repetitions as mm-hmm. hard and fast as I can. And then mm-hmm. I rest until I get to 15 seconds completed. And then I do it again. So for every mm-hmm. minute, I'm doing 12 repetitions, but I'm only doing them in three repetition blocks with Mm -hmm. roughly an eight to 10 second rest in between those blocks. And I find that I can work harder, I can work longer, I can actually accomplish more of training volume that way, and Mm -hmm. I'm getting strong and I feel powerful as a result of it. So in the ecosystem, incorporate this, like bring this into the training protocol, do something a little different and not just, well, I got to sustain time under tension because that to me isn't the answer. I totally agree. Um, and what I, I, I guess to wrap up here, what I would say on it is that I'm going to put on two different hats from wearing my trainer hat. If you're going to start doing some cluster loading with your clients, I I'm certainly not going to give advice, but the experience I would share is really work on your patience. Because like I said, you might be surprised. So we tend to walk at a certain speed, talk at a certain speed, chew at a certain speed. We have these self-selected paces and down the road, we'll get into something called dynamic systems theory, which sort of explains why we tend to move at the self-selected speeds we do. But people are accustomed, stereotype for, for to use a different term, at moving at a certain pace. And even if you tell someone, okay, we're going to do three reps, then you're going to rest, they understand it cognitively. They're just so used to doing it a certain way, they're going to just go into autopilot and do what they're accustomed to doing. So you have to say, no, 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 remember we said. So um, I've done a a decent amount of it, and it's it's fine. People actually, I, I think they enjoy it because it's something new to them. But it takes a lot of patience because their default is just doing the, you know, just the exercise in the way they've always done it. And putting on my own exerciser hat, I've been doing something similar, PJ, where I actually do a bit more of like what you what you were talking about in the last episode is where on a certain chest press machine, I'll take myself to fatigue And then I will, after that, I'll try to get five or six more reps in where I bring the weight down and I move at a really high velocity on a machine. So there's no risk. The risk of injury is, you know, minimal. Um, And I'll wait about 10 seconds between each rep and I'll I'll push, I'll do it as fast as I can. And anecdotally, I've seen over the last couple of weeks that I'm able to put about 10 more pounds, which is about 5% on the bar when I'm doing a barbell bench press. But at my age and with my training level, you know, it's not easy to make any gains. So, you know, I can't, I, I'm not doing any sort of qualified study to say it's specifically due to the, 
the clusters I'm doing at the end, but you know, it's something I'm playing with and I'm seeing some results. So I'm going to continue exploring. Yeah. And I think that's what our listeners should do is they should explore. And I just have one final thought with this myself. You know, we all listen to what is being said in our industry and we're reading the information that's out there. And for so long, we've, it's been drilled into our heads, you know, maintain time under tension, work until failure. Mm-hmm. And it's not necessarily true. Now, the <laughs> research that we've pulled up is fairly arcane. I mean, again, people aren't necessarily looking for the Grimby and Hanner study from 1977, <laughs> but it's there. I didn't see that in men's health this Yeah, time. and you're not likely to ever see that in men's health. <laughs> but the Sad. reality is conventional wisdom isn't necessarily right. These things are not settled facts. And the reality is there's so much useful information out there that at least question, even if you don't know where to look for the research, when someone says this is the way to do it, there is no way to do it. And we should always be questioning that. And this is an example that we've brought up of some methods that may actually produce great results. And we do have to play with it. Gigi, you're right. We have to test it for ourselves. We have to experience it anecdotally, but we should be experiencing it. And we should not Mm -hmm. either ignore it or be blind to it simply because someone's telling us something else. Amen. So with that, this was a great conversation, and this is going to lead to some other good stuff. And I'm glad that everybody came along with us on this one. Yep. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode, and it gave you lots to think about. So while you're thinking, why don't you consider becoming a member of our roundtable? What's the roundtable? Well, it's a place where we meet to discuss, opine, question, comment, and just engage in respectful conversation about all things related to human movement science. Everyone that joins has an equal seat at the table. So become a member by finding us on Instagram and sending us a message or visiting us at our Facebook group, the Fitness for Consumption Roundtable, and just click to join. We hope to see you there.